Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hello, 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 hello! Welcome back to another episode of The Delicious Legacy with me, Thomas Dinas. And today we're continuing our adventure to medieval Europe through its cuisine and recipes and cookbooks of late medieval time. This is our mini-series about the medieval food in Europe. And now we've reached part four. Of course, there's so many things that we can explore and we can uh, find out. We could have done uh, a million episodes on the subject, but time is precious and therefore we are sort of concluding this mini-series with um, the foods of the Byzantine Empire and of course the foods of the so-called Byzantine Empire, which is the Eastern Roman Empire, in turn had influence from East and West and from the ancient Roman Empire and ancient Greece. And um, all these elements fused together in addition with the trade with the Arabs and the Persians and uh, new spices coming from the East, from India and beyond, Tibet, China, Indonesia and so on. And so today we are actually bringing together all these elements that uh, make up the European medieval food together. And, and we'll see also one of the first ever French cookbooks, that of uh, the physician Dr. Anthemus, who was a Byzantine physician who advised the first Frankish kings. Every perfumier shall have his own shop and not invade another's. Members of the guild are to keep watch on, on one another to prevent the sale of adulterated products. They are not to stock poor quality goods in the shops. A sweet smell and a bad smell do not go together. They are to sell pepper, spikenard, cinnamon, aloes wood, ambergis, musk, frankincense, myrrh, balsam, indigo, dyer's herbs, lapis lazuli, fustic, storax, and in short, any article used for perfumery and dyeing. The stalls shall be placed in a row between the milestone and the revered icon of Christ that stands above the bronze arcade, so that the aroma may waft upwards to the icon 
and at the same time fill the vestibule of the royal palace. When the cargoes come from Haldia, Trebizond or elsewhere, they shall buy from the importers on the days appointed by the regulations. Importers shall not live in the city for more than three months. They shall sell their goods expeditiously and then return home. No member of the guild may purchase grocery goods or those sold by Steelyard. Perfumiers shall only buy goods that are sold by weight on scales. Any perfumier who currently trades also as a grocer shall be allowed to choose one or the other of these trades and shall be forbidden henceforth to carry on the trade that he does not choose. This from uh, the late 800s and from the Emperor Leo VI, which is known later as the Wise, comes from a book of regulations in the Constantinople's Guilds of Retail Traders. The trade in aromatics figures prominently in the book of the Eparch, and these tradesmen dealt not only with perfumes and dyes, but also in the spices that they were used in food, drink, medicine and incense. There cannot be complete um, history of medieval food without mentioning uh, the food of uh, the Eastern Roman Empire, Byzantium, and uh, Constantinople and their emperors and the royal uh, households there. From there we have many accounts of different um, books from the era about uh, what what was the produce of the city, uh, what was uh, coming in and going out from the ports of Constantinople and what the emperors and the court and the royal palace ate and their feasts and the festivals. We have an interesting account by Nikitas Honiatis on his chronicle about Manuel I Komnenus, one of the emperors of the late medieval Byzantium, and it goes like thus. On another occasion, Manuel had spent the day at the palace at Blahernae. Returning from there late in the evening, he passed the saleswoman who had street food, snacks in everyday speech out on display. He suddenly felt like drinking the hot soup and taking a bite of cabbage. One of his servants, called Anzas, said that they had better wait and control their hunger. There would be plenty of proper food when they got home. Giving him a sharp glance, Manuel said rather crossly that he would do exactly what he pleased. He went straight up to the bowl that the market woman was holding, full of the soup that he fancied. He leaned over, drank it down greedily and had several mouthfuls of greens on the side. Then he took out a bronze stator and handed it to one of his people. Change this for me, he said. Give the lady her two oboloi and make sure you give me back the other two. We don't know what the soup was exactly, but uh, clearly something hot and smelling rather tasteful for the emperor to gorge on it like this. And the greens were a salad of cabbage. The palace of Blahernay was on the northwestern corner of Constantinople, just south of the church of Panagia, Blahernay, and um, it's located on the steep northern slope of the sixth hill overlooking the Golden Horn. Uh, It was built in several stages. While dating to the late antiquity, it later expanded and served as the main imperial residence during the Comnenian and the Paleologian eras. This King Emmanuel built a great palace for the seat of his government upon the sea coast, in addition to the palaces which his fathers built, and he called its name Blahernae. 
he overlaid its columns and walls with gold and silver and engraved thereon representations of the battles before his day and of his own combats. He also set up a throne of gold and of precious stones, and a golden crown was suspended by a gold chain over the throne, so arranged that he might sit thereunder. It was inlaid with jewels of priceless value, and at night time no lights were required, for everyone could see by the light which the stones gave forth. This is the account of a 12th century traveller, Benjamin of Tudela. As um, it was Latin, or rather the Romans speech of the Balkans, the command language of the Byzantine army, we're not surprised to find names of foods that seem to have Latin uh, roots, even though the Eastern Roman Empire was predominantly Greek. There is bukelaton, which comes from the Latin pucelatum, which is the ring-shaped dry loaf typical of the Russians for the auxiliary armies. There is fusca, from Latin posca, which is the watery, vinegary wine that was given to soldiers that they were drinking in early Byzantine times. There is conditum, from the Latin conditum, the famous spiced wine aperitif of the late Roman Empire and Constantinople. Then there's rodakina, peaches, whose Greek name seems to describe these fruits as rosy, from the Greek word rhodos, rose, but actually derives from the old Latin variety name duracina, clingstone. Constantinople, of course, being the mother of all cities, the center of the world, the eye of the world, had many inhabitants from all over the known world. North Europeans, including English, were also at home in the city, some of them as mercenary troops enrolled in the famous Varangian Guard, the emperor's personal bodyguard, others as traders. It was these who introduced the novel delicacy of renge, or herrings, to the late medieval Constantinople. I presume some smoked herrings um, came from them too. Some favorite foods indicate by their names that the Romans of the early empire had brought them into fashion. Lactenda, or sucking pigs, and Condinton, as we said, spiced wine. A new focus on Asia Minor was obviously of natural consequence since the establishment of Constantinople as the imperial capital was on the shores of Asia. Leads to important gastronomic discoveries such as gazelle, noted by Simeon Seth. And for the same reason, the Black Sea and its great rivers became the sources of new fish specialties with the strange northern names, including the sturgeon, murzulin, and berzikon, and their caviar, javiarin. The passage in the introduction mentioned from the Book of Epoch It's very interesting because it gives us an idea of the smells and the sounds of uh, a medieval city. Yes, it was a big, the biggest city in Europe. Yes, it was um, the capital. But um, in terms of um, how people interacted, what guilds existed and what spices were sold in the streets and the markets, it's all pretty interesting and gives us an idea of uh, uh, the sounds and the smells and the... Um, and the whole um, aromas of uh, a medieval city, which brings brings it more alive. Uh, there's another passage from the same book of Epoch, which um, tells us about uh, the Messi, the middle street, which ran through the city of Constantinople from east to west, and it was a busy daily market. Also had more than 500 prostitutes, apparently, which conducted their businesses there. And anyway, this decree 
of Leo the Wise, compiled at 895, regulated the trading guilds of Constantinople and thus provides us a good deal of information about retail trade there. Grocers may keep their shops anywhere in the city, in the broad streets and in the city blocks, so that the necessities of life may be easily procurable. I guess that's a precursor of the 15-minute cities, I guess. They shall sell meat, salt fish, gut, cheese, honey, oil, legumes of all kinds, butter, solid and liquid pitch, cedar oil, hemp, linseed, gypsum, crockery, storage jars, nails, and in short, every article which can be sold by steel yard and not by scales. They shall not sell any article which belongs to the trade of perfumers, shop merchants, drapers, taverners, or butchers. It's not surprising then that when the Byzantine troops invaded Persia in 626, spices had an important place among the booty that was taken. In the palace at Dastagerd, the Roman soldiers found goods which have been left behind, alloys and alloys wood of 70 or 80 pounds, silk, so many linen shirts as to be beyond counting, sugar, ginger and many other goods. In these palaces they also found countless numbers of ostriches, antelopes, wild asses, peacocks and pheasants. Huge lions and tigers lived in Horsoi's hunting grounds. Of course, we don't just have accounts of the European medieval customs and foods by Europeans, but from uh, Arab travelers and um, writers and ambassadors from uh, Persia and the Arab Muslim world and even beyond that. Harun ibn Yahya is a late 9th century traveler and he was a Syrian who was probably captured uh, at Ascalon in uh, modern Israel sometime around um, 886 AD by Byzantine pirates and he was kept prisoner at Constantinople for a period. He later, in his accounts that have been preserved by Ibn Rusta, writes the following. On Easter Sunday, a public festival in which the emperor went in possession from the palace to St. Sophia took place. On this day, no water was drunk but spiced wine, bought from the fountain that lay on the root of the procession. On the festival day, this tank is filled with 10,000 jars of wine and a thousand jars of white honey, and the whole is spiced with a camel's load of nard, gloves and cinnamon. The tank is covered so that no one can see inside. When the emperor leaves the palace and enters the church, he sees the statues and the spiced wine that bows from the mouths and their ears, gathering in the basin below until it's full. And each person in his procession, as they go towards the festival, gets a brimming cup of this wine. Our prisoner slash traveler, Harun ibn Ahia, writes also the following. This is what happens at Christmas. He sends for the Muslim captives and they are seated at these tables. When the emperor is seated at his gold table, they bring him four gold dishes, each of which is brought on its own little chariot. One of these dishes, encrusted with pearls and rubies, they say belonged to Solomon, son of David. The second, similarly encrusted to David, 
the third to Alexander, and the fourth to Constantine. They are placed before the emperor, and no one else may eat from them. They remain there while the emperor is at the table. When he rises, they are taken away. Then, for the Muslims, many hot and cold dishes are placed on the other tables, and the imperial herald announces, I swear on the emperor's head that there's no pork at all in these dishes. The dishes on large silver and gold platters are then served to the emperor's guests. While description of the food itself in this Christmas feast isn't mentioned by Harun, as this would be viewed as uh, inappropriate, we have depiction from the 12th century of food in December time by Theodoros Prodromos, where he mentions wild hares, partridges, deer, beef, male goat, gazelle, lean meat double-cooked, hot and spicy, and suckling animals. Incidentally, our um, Arab traveler Harun ibn Yahya, later he was released and he traveled from Constantinople to Rome and then he traveled from Rome to Britain and where we have, we have his account below. From this city, Rome, you sail the sea journey for three months till you reach the land of the king of Burjan. These are the Burgundians. You journey hence through the mountains and ravines for a month till you reach the land of the Franks. From here, you go forth and journey for four months, until you reach the capital of Bartinia, Britain. It is a great city on the shore of the Western Ocean, ruled by seven kings. At the gate of this city, which means the capital, is an idol. When the stranger wishes to enter it, he sleeps and cannot enter it, until the people of the city take him, to examine his intention and purpose in entering the city. They are Christians, they are the last of the lands of the Greeks, and there is no civilization beyond them. I'll be back after this short break. Hello there, sorry to interrupt. My name is Dr. Neil Buttery and I'm host of the British Food History Podcast, a podcast that you, as a fan of The Delicious Legacy, might be interested in. I explore British food and its history in all its glory, with interviews with special guests, recipes, reenactments, and tracking down forgotten recipes and hyper-regional specialities. Previous topics include medieval eels, 18th century dining, curry, London street food sellers, breakfast, and the good old Yorkshire pudding. Search for the British Food History Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And now, back to the delicious legacy. Cheers. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, 
all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Today's episode is brought to you with the welcome support of Malbin Greek, UK's leading Greek delicatessen, supplier and distributor of premium Greek produce. Whatever you need, Malbian Greek has you covered. You can shop online and have the divine and delicious goods delivered to your doorstep across the UK, or you can visit the shop at Art 17 Apollo Business Park, Lucy Way, SC16, 4ET, Bermondsey, London. Malbian Greek, the one stop shop for your Greek fix. What interests me in this passage and uh, what. Um, made me include it here is the fact not only that these places still had a um, connection to the ancient Roman Empire, even though uh, Rome abandoned uh, Britain uh, for uh, four or five centuries earlier from the, the travels of, uh, of our uh, Arab writer, but the fact that the connection was real and archaeological evidence emerged uh, all the time with um, Byzantine coins and um, goods from uh, Western, Southwestern um, England and it speaks about the sheer connections of the medieval world like people weren't isolated uh, and um, insular there was a wider trade network throughout Europe and the Arab world and the Middle East going all the way to China and India of course and further afield with all the spices coming from there and of course this influence is more so than obvious in the cookbooks and the dishes and the recipes that we find from England, Germany, Italy, the Arab world, and Byzantium. Which brings me neatly to the first ever supposed French cookbook. Well, or one of the last Roman cookbooks, or something like that anyway. Let's not uh, try to define it, but uh, let's talk about uh, this uh, guy called Anthemus. So Anthemus was a doctor and an author of a manual of dietary advice in Latin. He was born around uh, 475 AD, so pretty, pretty early in the Middle Ages. Uh, still, we were on that cusp of time. And he died around 525 AD. And he was a physician, doctor, and such, visiting Greek, and also an author of this manual. This is called On the Observance of Foods. And the book uh, takes a form of a letter addressed to the Merovingian king Theoteric, who ruled uh, northeastern Gaul, from his capital at Metz. His reign was from about 511 AD to 534 AD. Anthemus is thought to be exiled from the Byzantine Emperor Zeno in 478 for some sort of uh, treasonable correspondence. So what he did, he went to the western part of uh, the Roman Empire, which has by now has collapsed in many different kingdoms. And um, he found asylum, firstly at the court of the Ostrogoth king Theodoric the Great, and then to the Frankish king, as we said. Some important 
records, earliest records we have in this book is about some food words like uh, Musirio and Tufera. We have the modern reflexes, which include the regional French Mousseron and the English mushroom and French truff and English truffle. We also have food words such as Nauprida or Lamprida, which represent the modern French Lamprois and the English Lamprey, the fish, which we, as we've seen in the previous episode was a great delicacy in the Middle Ages. So in a sense, we can say Anthemus's book is both the last culinary text from the Roman Empire and the very first French cookery book. I mean, that's not my, not my idea. That's uh, modern scholars and authors uh, like uh, Grant talk about that. Anthemus also argues against the macho habit of eating raw and bloody beef. Mm, that reminds me of something. His um, comment is, such people are not really healthy. And he notes the French delicacy of bacon used both internally and externally to cure wounds. And he notes that bastards, the birds and cucumbers, which he commends are not available where he now is. He has a sardonic turn of phrase, you have no need of another poison if you eat oysters that smell or if you eat baked cheese. Anthemus <laughs> is convinced that baked or boiled cheese will give you pure stone and proves it as it is by saying cool a piece of boiled cheese and it will become harder than a stone. Although his book is not a true recipe book in the sense that we mean it, obviously, with other ones, there's, the text itself includes detailed instructions for making a few different dishes and especially one called Afrutum, which is uh, using wiped egg whites and um, that seems to be the first mention of a souffle. There's also... Uh, recipes for a beef stew using honey, vinegar, and spices. In his chapter about bacon, he says, At this point I will explain how bacon may be eaten to the best effect, for there's no way I can pass over this Frankish delicacy. If it has been simply roasted in the same way as a joint of meat, the fat drains to the fire and the bacon becomes dry, and whoever eats it is harmed and not benefited. It also produces bad humors and causes indigestion. But if bacon that has been boiled and cooked is eaten, it is more beneficial, regulating constipated bowels and being well digested. But it should be boiled well, and if of course it's from a ham, it should be cooked more. None of the rind should be eaten, because it's not digested. Bacon fat, which is poured over some foods and vegetables when oil is not available, is not harmful, but frying brings absolutely no benefit. As for raw bacon which so I hear, the Franks have a habit of eating, I am full of curiosity regarding the person who sold them such a medicine as to obviate the need for other medicines. They eat it raw, because it's very beneficial and as a remedy is responsible for their health. Its effect is akin to that of good medicine for their internal organs, and if they have any difficulties with their bowels or intestines, it cures them. Stomach and gnawing worms are expelled by this medicine as soon as they are born. It regulates the bowels and, what is so good for them, they are healthier than other people because of this food. Let me give you a good example so that what I'm writing may be believed. Thick bacon, placed for a long time on all wounds, be they external or internal, or caused by a blow, both cleanses any putrefaction and aids healing. Look at what power there is in raw bacon and see how the Franks heal what doctors try to cure with drugs or with potions. Very interesting passage here. <laughs> I'm not entirely sure we should uh, start using bacon for our wounds. So, don't, 
don't try this at home. From Athimo's text, we have um, the recipe for uh, afratun or souffle. Greek has the name afrutum, afratum, for what is called spumeum in Latin. It is made from chicken and white of egg. You must take a lot of white of egg so that your afratum becomes foamy. It should be arranged in a mound on a shallow casserole with a previously prepared sauce based on fish sauce underneath. Then the casserole is set over the coals and the afrutum cooked in the steam of the sauce. The casserole is then placed in the middle of a serving tray and a little wine or honey poured over it. It is eaten with a spoon or a small ladle. We often add fine fish or scallops to this dish because they are very good and also common at home. Beef can be stewed or boiled in a pot and served with a sauce. Boil it in fresh water, enough that you need not to add water during cooking. When the meat is boiled, put in a casserole about half a cup of sharp vinegar, some leeks and a little pennyroyal, some celery root and fennel, and allow to cook for one hour. Then add half as much honey as you had vinegar, or make it sweeter if you like. Cook over a low heat, stirring the pot frequently with your hands so that the sauce is well mixed with the meat. Then grind 50 peppercorns, half a solidus each of punch chuck and spikenard, one tremesis of cloves. Carefully grind all the spices together in an earthenware mortar, adding a little wine. When well ground, add them to the pot and stir well. Allow time for them to lose some of their individual force and to blend their flavors into the sauce before it is taken off the fire. If, besides honey, you have must or concentrated must, you may choose any of the three to add as directed above. Do not use copper. The flavor is better if cooked in earthenware. Researching uh, for all these uh, medieval foods and recipes just made me think that um, everything changes, but in a sense, everything remains the same. Not very profound, I know, but um, in my quest to uncover the most uh, secretive and amazing recipes from all corners of medieval Europe, I seem to stumble upon the same names or some similar recipes. And of course, in many ways, many related methods of cooking, techniques, sauces, spices and other ingredients. When in reality, what I would like to do is uh, really bring to the surface and uncover something truly singular from its corner of uh, medieval Europe. The truly regional cuisine, because I'm here basically, I'm trying to find and praise the peasants and the farmers and what they ate and find out more about uh, them and their lives, as well as their habits and the preferences. But the more I look for differences, the more everything seems to converge to the same names. As we've seen, we go back to Apicius or back to Anthemus or back to the same recipe books that has survived, unfortunately or fortunately. And of course, the same recipes that have influenced one another. And it brings the question, at least to my mind, why do cooks and chefs and all the higher classes, regardless of the age we live in, could be rich or could be aristocracy and so on, nouveau rich today or whatever you want to call them, they do consider the best of cooking as something complex, expensive and rare and crucially difficult to make. And um, at the end of the day, the main question is, what is a taste dish? What is delicious food that satisfies both 
your mind and your body. That should be the end of, of the quest. And with that, I cannot stop thinking about the parallels with today's cooking. I'm pondering um, modern European restaurant cooking and cuisine in general. That is the one based and influenced by French cuisine. By Like this. This is the mainstream, right? The standard that most professionals learn when they go to cookery schools and then they practice at least for a few years of their lives. So this interesting interplay of how a restaurant, be it in Chester or Cologne in Germany or in Athens, and catering for the same taste buds and the same clientele in a sense, people expect a certain standard of cuisine, if it's modern European cuisine in a way, and they don't feel much different from each other. Maybe not in terms of their cooking methods, uh, techniques, and even ingredients as such most of the time. And in that respect, this idea doesn't feel far removed from the medieval European cooking as well. So it seems to me that medieval European high cuisine was very similar all over Europe. And same goes with really expensive um, restaurants in modern Europe. You know, the parallels with um, expensive ingredients, like today's Wagyu beef or edible gold and super expensive spices. And then in the medieval world, you had super expensive spices and sugar worth more than gold and used in a similar vein, in a similar manner perhaps. But what I'm trying to do is the opposite, try and persevere in my internal quest for simple, amazing peasant food. And uh, I'm sure on this episode, I found something for you. Thanks for listening to part four of the European Medieval Cuisine. I hope you enjoyed our mini-series and looking forward to having you again on the next episode, which is going to be an interview with a very knowledgeable guest. Now, if you want to listen to this series as one episode, you can subscribe on my Patreon page where you get the podcasts early, ad-free and with extra content and bonus material. You will also find, obviously, as I said, this series as one episode together, and so you can listen and immerse yourself into medieval uh, atmosphere. This podcast can keep going only with your generous support. So please, if you feel uh, like um, you're enjoying the episodes and you want me to do more of them faster and in more detail, please uh, support me on Patreon. So this series in medieval food, it took me around seven to eight days to complete uh, the time to research, write, record, edit, mix and sound design the episodes. All of it, um, yeah, it takes uh, quite a long time. So if you enjoyed it and you want to support me as uh, Patreon backers or subscribers, uh, please, uh, please do. Uh, if you search the Delicious Legacy podcast and Patreon, you'll find my page. And there you can uh, give from $3 a month and uh, keep me going. And uh, I would like to thank all of my Patreon backers so far. And of course, uh, all of you listeners out there on Spotify, iTunes, YouTube, that you keep listening um, the episodes. Please get in touch if you have any ideas for um, other episodes or if you have any questions on what you've heard on this one. And uh, please, yeah, uh, hit me up with your own um, ideas and uh, recipes from uh, medieval world and beyond. Thank you and goodbye. See you in a few weeks for the next episode.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.